0: This is In Sickness.
1: I'm Angeliki, I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in
0: public health in developing areas. It's been so long since we've recorded a part. Which is actually so
1: wonderful, because it means that we got to record together. Yeah. Okay, we got two episodes together, I feel like that's really really good for us I
0: do too thank you all for your patience (laughs) life has been hectic (laughs) yes there's been international travel school life figuring out how technology works I feel like the mood is low today
1: (laughs) I mean nothing perks me up quite like putting on red lipstick at 3 p.m. on a weekday for no reason and talking to my best friend about lupus
0: yeah Me too. I don't have lipstick on, but the rest is true. Why don't you introduce today's disease
1: for us, Maya?
0: I would love to. Today, we're talking about lupus, and we're doing it in honor of Valentine's Day. Here's why, though. Lupus is an autoimmune disease. So that means it affects your immune system and it makes your immune system attack your own body because it can't differentiate between things that it doesn't want, like a disease or something you're allergic to and the healthy tissue in your body. Another thing that lupus does is it causes inflammation, which can affect the joints, your skin, your lungs, or your heart. Ah, yes. Inflamed heart. What else could possibly say Valentine's Day more? Chocolate. (laughs) Okay, lupus is often called the disease of many faces because its onset and its symptoms can be super, super unpredictable and take a lot of different forms. One symptom that does happen in about 50% of the cases of lupus is you get this rash on your face that looks like a butterfly with its wings sort of spread across both cheeks, and that is called a butterfly rash, (laughs) um, or scientifically a malar rash. And it's sort of this like red or kind of purpley hue, and it spreads across your cheeks, which also typically worsens in sunlight. And we'll talk about that and other symptoms in a moment. But before we get to the nitty gritty, I want to talk sort of about the origin of the name, which is something I've always been really curious about, because it is not Something that I would have, like, knowing what I know about it, I wouldn't have named it Lupus, because, of course, that means wolf in Latin. Shout out to Professor Lupin, the most obviously named character in the entire Harry Potter universe, just putting it out there. But, like, nothing that I knew about Lupus screamed, uh, like, wolfy to me, so I kind of didn't understand it. Uh, So as Angel and I were talking about at the beginning before we started recording, there is some different scholarship about the origin of like who used this first and i think she'll probably talk a little bit more intelligently about it than i <laughs> but basically the full name of lupus is lupus erythematosus, and lupus does actually mean wolf and unclear on its first use in, <laughs> in history there was a bit of
1: a, a bit of a controversy
0: in the first reading of the script we both had very different dates this was it 895? Was it the 13th century? Was it 960? Uh, to be discussed, but the general premise was the same, which is that that rash or sometimes lesions on the face looked similar to a wolf bite. Having seen some of the pictures, I can't say I get that, but I've also never seen a wolf bite, and it was like the 800s to 13th century, so. <laughs> you never know bit of an interval but it's like the deep dark ages true the latter half of the most common name of lupus erythematosus comes from the greek erythros which means red and that refers to the color of the rash so that makes an angel's lipstick and <laughs> um yeah i feel like that makes a little bit more sense in terms of naming conventions i'm just putting it out there so I did say the most common kind of lupus there. So let's just dive into that super quick. The first one that we just talked about is the most common type of lupus. It's systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE. When people say lupus, that is usually what they're talking about. It's like 70% of all lupus cases. This is the one that causes inflammations to organs or organ systems, either chronically, which means repeatedly over time, Or acutely, meaning very severely and suddenly. One of the most challenging things about lupus that I mentioned at the beginning is that it has a variety of symptoms, and as is our favorite with the diseases we talk about, they are super common to other diseases also. So it's like really hard to pick it out. So the most common ones include skin rashes, arthritis, swelling in your feet and your eyes because of the effect it has on your kidney, fatigue, and fevers. More severe cases cause kidney swelling and damage so bad that you need a transplant or dialysis. It can cause inflammation of the brain and the nervous system, which causes a brain fog or memory loss or seizures or behavior changes. And of course, inflammation of the heart, which causes a heart attack. So a lot of different options for all the different things that can happen to you. And the uh, quote unquote best part is that we don't really know where it comes from or what causes it other than... Um, Autoimmune issues often run in families. So if a parent or family member already has lupus, your chances of getting lupus are higher. Okay, second kind of lupus is cutaneous Mm -hmm. lupus. And it's not really like a separate specific kind, but it's like a specific side effect of lupus that a lot of people with the disease get. So it's just a skin disease version of lupus which causes rashes and sores, but typically in places where the sun touches you. So like your face, your neck, your ears, and like up to 70% of people with lupus find that the symptoms worsen when you're exposed to UV light, which is crazy. And then within cutaneous lupus, there's actually three subtypes. Uh, One is discoid lupus, where you get these really big disc-shaped lesions that are really big and red and scaly. And they aren't super painful, but they can lead to hair loss, scarring, or even skin cancer. Then there's subacute cutaneous, which is smaller lesions that are also not painful and also UV sensitive. And then there's acute cutaneous lupus, which is basically when you just have a flare up and you get the rash. Okay, back to other forms of lupus. I had no idea there were so many kinds. There's also drug-induced lupus. Which I hate that this is a thing, and it's exactly what it sounds like. But basically, you get a lupus-like reaction to very specific drugs, but it takes time for the body to have this reaction, and it usually does go away when the treatment's over. So there's some common drugs that cause this. One is hydralazine. 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 I'm gonna say hydralazine, which yeah, you use to treat right. <laughs> you use to treat high blood pressure or hypertension proxenamide, which you use to treat heart rhythms that are irregular, and isoniazide, which you use to treat tuberculosis. So a lot of those, if you take them for long extended periods of time, you're basically your body starts to react to them in the same way it would to lupus. You stop taking them and it eventually goes away. Finally... There is neonatal lupus. So technically, again, not a real lupus, but it is a very rare thing that happens to the newborns of mothers with lupus. So basically, the baby can be born with some of the symptoms of lupus. So they have like a rash, liver problems, low blood cell count, or even a heart block. But basically, all those symptoms just go away on their own with time. So like they can be born with a very severe lupus side effect, and then it just vanishes except for a heart block. Um, But those can be identified Um, really early on, like in utero and the baby can still be treated so that they're born healthy. So those are the four main groups of lupus. Um, I think it's clear that SLE, the most common one is what we typically mean when we refer to, to lupus. So usually we talk a little bit also about who it happens to, like what areas of the world are most susceptible to this and stuff like that. Not really data that I found very much about on lupus. Because apart from those like very specific instigating factors like being born with it or drug-induced lupus, pretty much anybody can develop garden-variety lupus. Like it really, There does not seem to be a hard and fast rule, except that if you have a family history of autoimmune diseases, you're more at risk. Although, and I'm sure this will not shock anyone because everything is terrible all the time, you are far more likely to get lupus if you're a woman. Ta-da! I'm shocked. Another blessing. So, in fact, actually, 9 out of 10 people with lupus are women. Part of this could be due to hormonal activity, especially because you're most likely to develop lupus during your reproductive years, which is broadly defined as 15 to 45. Uh, It is also two to three times more common in African-American, Latinx, Asian-American, Native American, Alaskan, Hawaiian, and other Pacific Islander women than it is for white women. And the women of color's symptoms may come on earlier, And more severely. So in conclusion, this disease is sexist and racist. Thank you. (laughs) That sums up our podcast. No,
1: thank you, Maya.
0: (laughs) But... Seriously, as we've discussed, like, this obviously offers a lot of huge challenges because, A, this is already a really hard disease to get an appropriate diagnosis for because it has so many different symptoms. But also, women of color, as we've talked about many times, face a lot of challenges in accessing appropriate care with, like, medical professionals who will listen to them and hear them out when they're describing their symptoms and order appropriate tests. And so if you are developing a relatively rare disease that has all this random assortment of side effects and symptoms and you're already being ignored by the medical system like mm, not looking great. Now for the fun part. How do you diagnose and treat lupus? We are slightly more advanced than just looking at someone's face and saying it looks like a butterfly and or wolf bit you. So you can get blood and It looks and- like
1: a butterfly bit you.
0: <laughs> Sorry. You can get blood tests and urine tests done, and they will indicate if you do have lupus. But as of now, there is no cure. So you can treat the various symptoms with, like, over-the-counter NSAIDs, like Advil or whatever. You can also take anti-malarials, which I will talk about a little bit more, um, immunosuppressants, and so on. But there isn't an actual cure for lupus. There's just a treatment for the symptoms, which, again, thematic, that's kind of a bummer. So... That's what lupus is. And I'm going to hand it over to Angel to explain to me what the hell this all yeah. means and where it comes from. Okay, so in
1: our historical section today, I'm going to be giving you like the broadest overview of lupus in history. And then I'll give you a case study, um, which is actually one of the most reliable examples I've seen of retrospective diagnosis, which is Queen Anne. The date I have for when the word lupus was first used to describe lesions with that connotation of like it looks like a wolf bite, is 850 AD. And the <laughs> article I found did not say who. So that's really helpful. I would, I would just add that the term lupus doesn't actually distinguish between the types of diseases causing ulcerous lesions into the 17th and 18th centuries. So it's like describing the skin eruption. Oh. But that's about it. So in the 13th century, what I have is Rolando de Parma, I have no idea who that is, makes the distinction between lesions of the face, which he calls noli metangere, weird, right? And (laughs) lesions of the limbs, which he calls lupula. And then in 1661, I have um, a differentiation between uh, what they call three species of cancer, which is the cancer, so that's one type the no Me tangere we just we just learned that that's lesions of the face and lupus or the wolf it is in the shins ankle bones and thighs <laughs> like you were nipped by a wolf exactly huh. um, and then between 1786 and 1817 what you have are the first they're called atlases of skin diseases so it's almost like an encyclopedia a medical encyclopedia with uh, illustrations of what various skin diseases are, and this is the first known representation of a patient with lupus, a disease which is classified as one of the tubercula, and it's not actually until 1933 that the difference is made between lupus vulgaris, so tuberculosis of the skin, and cutaneous lupus. Mm -hmm. So overall, the terminology gets really confusing, and the categories are vague, and they keep calling it lupus. It's all lupus. (laughs) Um, But the big, big discovery... (laughs) that I think makes the most difference to a diagnosis actually happens between 1872 and 1905 when a number of researchers make the discoveries that point the way to this being more of a systemic issue rather than a skin disease.
0: I mean, you have to love the vague optimism of like, guys, don't worry, there's only three diseases out there. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all a representation of your sins right
1: (laughs) your mortal sin yes cankers if you pray i'm sure it'll be fine and then in 1948 you have the discovery of lupus cells so that's the end of my super broad overview and now i'm going to talk about queen anne which is actually the reason that i wanted to i now remember i wanted to do lupus because i got excited that i actually already knew about someone famous (laughs) who had lupus so she was queen of england from 1702 to 1707 at which point England and Scotland had the act of union, becoming Great Britain. And then she reigned as as Queen of Great Britain uh, and Ireland until she died in 1714 of uh, complications from her lupus. She's recently come back into pop culture with the release a few years back of The Favourite, which uh, starred Olivia Colman and Rachel Weisz and all sorts of people. And Olivia Colman actually won an Oscar for that performance. And let's just say that Queen Anne... She's a really unpleasant character <laughs> which I think <laughs> okay. is 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 like reflected it reflects the research that has been done about her and I do think that she was quite a frustrated angry woman who was in a lot of pain for most of her life and was really really just yeah. like, not nice to people so yeah she's she's not remembered fondly and she's not been particularly well known up until like 2018. And she's actually most famous for the rumors of her affair with her favorite, Sarah Churchill, <laughs> Duchess of Marlborough, uh, and rumors that she was a lesbian, which incidentally is the entire subject of the film, The Favorite. So she was always called sickly, but it's now thought that she did suffer from SLE and the uh, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome called Hughes syndrome and a quote which produces bleeding clotting stroke and obstetrical calamity um so in that quote the author is actually referring to uh, her 17 pregnancies of which all but one resulted in either miscarriage infant death or stillbirth and that's actually of of 18 children because one of them was twins it's it's oh horrifying my god absolutely horrifying um, and her only—that is
0: traumatic.
1: Yeah, yeah. So her only surviving child, who is William, Duke of Gloucester, he died at eleven years old of conditions that are now considered like neon- neonatal lupus. So seizures, childhood dyskinesias, and gross hydrocephalus. That's terrible. So we actually know a lot about her various diagnoses and treatments. We have a huge amount of surviving source material from her doctors and from the people around her, which I think is, is part of the value of looking at someone like Queen Anne. We essentially have like a proper patient file for her, including information about all of her deliveries, her many symptoms and flare ups. And she, she did have flare ups throughout her life. And we have a lot of information about her state of health and even post-mortem information from the embalming procedure. So, like, a lot Mm. of data for once. So the physician who looked after her during many of her pregnancies was called Sir David Hamilton. And he was known as a man midwife, (laughs) which is a thing that starts to happen in the 18th century. Uh, Male physicians who begin to specialize in obstetrics and in deliveries. And this is partly about, like, pushing out unofficial practitioners, discrediting female midwives or other fringe... Healthcare practitioners who would normally be servicing the community. And Sir David Hamilton treated her before she became queen. So he wasn't her only physician, but he was one of the few who stayed with her throughout her adult life. And one author said that he did think that she often had what we would describe now as psychosomatic disorders and prescribed spirit of millipedes for them which like it's quite relatable that that even the queen would be told that it's all in her head um, oh but God. but the spirit of millipedes that's disgusting
0: that's every element of that is bad I, I don't like
1: it Could not <laughs> even bring myself to look it up because just the idea of googling spirit of millipedes and then having like pictures of millipedes turn up in the search engine like I just couldn't so I'm sorry I will I'm envisioning this like just like essence of
0: yeah, essence of, exactly.
1: <laughs> oh my god, I'm getting the creepy crawlies. This is so disgusting. <laughs> okay, move on from the millipedes. Okay, yeah. Move on from the millipedes. Yeah, we we had a bit of an infestation in the house where I grew up, and I'm just like scarred for life. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Okay, so I wanted to talk a bit about uh, the retrospective diagnoses that have been done for Queen Anne, and I think a lot of these date from, from the early 2010s, when there was the big... Scottish referendum on Scottish independence, because Anne was the one to bring that about. All of a sudden, people became a little bit more interested in who she was and started to think about her reputation as like a a sickly queen. Some of the studies of historical lupus that I have seen actually do focus quite a lot on her. She is one of the more famous sufferers. And the points that these studies normally hit on are that from the age of 33, she suffered from gout and in the, 7th, in the 18th century, that's a name that could refer to any joint or pain condition. Because gout, proper gout is actually incredibly rare in premenopausal women, and it normally only happens in one joint. Whereas for Anne, she had gout, quote-unquote gout, in her feet, in her knees, in her hands, and other joints. And it was episodic and more consistent with like migratory polyarthritis, which is what it's called in this 1992 uh, article. And at 35, uh, she actually had to be carried to her coronation, and from that point on, she had a lot of difficulty walking. Uh, there are also references to her increasing obesity after the age of 24, when prior to that point, she, she had been quite a keen horsewoman. She received a variety of treatments for the arthritis, including, and I quote, laudanum on toast floating in brandy, which sounds kind of fun and she <laughs> also
0: <laughs> float the toad. I don't matter. know
1: when <laughs> it just get soaked and go to the bottom yeah I don't understand but that's fine <laughs> just laudanum on toast it's better than millipedes. So. <laughs> <laughs> she also went to the bath, set bath she had a skin condition on her face which made it red and spotted and throughout her reign she secretly used paint to cover up the blotches on her face and we know that from a document from 1713 These are some of the high points of uh, why scholars have thought that she suffered from lupus, in addition to all of the problems she had with her various deliveries. And it kind of fits in with Maya's earlier characterization of lupus as the disease of many faces. So it's a collection of symptoms which were diagnosed and treated separately, but which taken as a whole mean that for once we're fairly sure about that diagnosis. When she died, there is some evidence that it was kidney failure which is a good time. Out of curiosity, I actually looked around for a modern study to see if any of this echoed the experience of Queen Anne, and I did find a 2015 British study called Exploring the Social and Interpersonal Experiences of South Asian Women with the Diagnosis of Systemic Lupus Erythematosus. And shockingly, there are parallels. (laughs) There are totally parallels to be drawn with our historical case study. So the treatments... Some, some of the main themes for me that they have in common are the treatments which seem to decrease the quality of life mm-hmm. while solving some aspects. The struggle to get treatment when you're looking well but feeling poorly. The perception of malingering. I can see Maya nodding and kind of rolling <laughs> her eyes. We're going to talk about this. And the alienation, the emotional upheaval, and the physical suffering that result from the experience of SLE. And obviously, we need to be really, really careful about projecting backwards into the past or even across different communities of people with very different backgrounds. So the 18th century white privileged final queen of the House of Stuart will obviously have a very different lived experience to modern British women of South Asian descent. Sure. But I was really struck by all all of the points in common. And for Anne, who's remembered as, frankly, a nasty piece of work, we have the source material to argue that her illness called her, caused her great suffering and that she lashed out against the people around her throughout her adult life. Something with really jibes with the experiences of these women in this study, and also with a stat that I found from 2007 that stated that nearly half of married women got divorced within five years of a lupus diagnosis. So while many people with lupus do have fulfilling relationships, the point I'm really trying to make is about the real human impacts of disease and that mm-hmm. this is also emotional, psychological, and like socially quite traumatic, and that the echoes here really make me think we haven't moved that far off. I would and agree. she's shaking her head. <laughs> so yeah, just like in the context of some previous discussions we've had about women's health and um getting diagnosis as a woman, let alone a woman of color, my impression is that although we have Better tools for treating some of the symptoms of lupus now than ep- essence of millipedes, for example. We'll never properly be able to widen that gap between the historical and the present day suffering until we address the gender inequality in healthcare.
0: It's remarkable that even somebody who was in a position of leadership was basically being told, like, then you yeah. had. Okay. So it's funny because I actually had like, originally I was thinking of taking almost exactly the same tack as that. And I did such a long intro. There were so many elements of lupus that I didn't want to get too crazy. And I was kind of floundering around trying to find like a good case study or like something really interesting and compelling. So I basically followed this exact same process where I was like, most famous people with lupus and plugged it into Google (laughs) and hoped that an interesting story would pop up. And it didn't. But I did want to let you all know that the scars on Seal's face, like, kiss from a rose, da, 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 you know, Seal, he those are discoid lupus.
1: Ah, oh, I didn't know that.
0: I know, I didn't either. And apparently he's, like, very proud that he survived this and is, like, an advocate for it and has, like, talked about it publicly. I didn't know. So that's not my section, but I did want to let everybody know the fact. And then... I was going to talk about the challenges of getting diagnosed with lupus and how hard it is for people to be taken seriously by the medical elite to get appropriate testing and treatment. But while I think it's really important and relevant, it's also so sad and like you've touched on it already and we've touched on it. So instead I kind of wanted to take like a fun little, I mean, listen, none of this is going to be like a good time, but I wanted to take an interesting segue that I promise is relevant. But it's like still kind of sad, but it's really interesting and kind of strange. So
1: I mean, I fully support this because I think I, I've taken us to a really dark place. And <laughs> we should probably we should probably talk about some drugs
0: instead. Okay, great. It's perfect because I'm gonna talk about some drugs. So for this section, I'm gonna talk about hydroxychloroquine and that name might ring a bell from what feels like a full eternity ago because uh-huh it is the anti-malarial that was touted as a false cure for covid like that literally yes. feels like a full blown lifetime but that was like a couple year and a half maybe <laughs> also i was
1: cheering because i thought i knew the answer but i was wrong i thought oh my god that thing that thing from leprosy
0: it's funny. It's not the case, though. Um, Sorry. Yeah, no, the fake COVID cure. Fake COVID cure. So we've, like, moved on to ivermectin or whatever now. But, yeah, remember that weird moment in time where, like, the former president of the United States was talking about this as a thing? That's what we're going to talk about. So a little bit of background about hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine. And hydroxychloroquine, which is its derivative, originally come from the bark of the quincona tree, which is found in the Andes of South America. And it was a very, very common medicinal herb. So obviously, as with almost everything that I love to talk about, we're going to take this back to colonialism. So this treatment, this herb, this bark, was stolen essentially from indigenous peoples by colonizers. And it was used by a lot of pretty well-known colonizers, which is what brought it sort of to the forefront of Europeans' attention. So people like the wife of the Viceroy of Peru would take it as treatment, especially when they got malaria because they saw indigenous peoples using it and that it had a positive effect. Once this sort of the European nations and medical practitioners could speak to the curative powers of the Kinchona tree, um, they began to export it. So <laughs> I'm, I didn't dive too deeply into it, but I'm sure that we can safely presume that this had a really negative effect on the local environment and peoples. But basically, they would take the, the bark of this tree, dry it, powder it and export it across Europe. Especially in the seventeenth century, as malaria began to spread and become more common and well known as people colonized these different lands and even mm-hmm. within Europe.
1: And that's actually part of part of a broader tradition of Europeans exporting all sorts of like natural specimens back to Europe. Mm-hmm. like whether they're as treatments or as as curiosities. Like people were, we're bringing back all sorts of natural specimens, be it like like the original collection of the British Museum. Mm-hmm. Like if you go in, it's actually the least visited gallery, but it's full of these samples mm-hmm. and illustrations of all of these specimens from from South America and from all over the world. That's really cool.
0: So of course, one thing about this is like as it began to became really necessary and really popular. Obviously, the church wanted to control it, as they love to do. So they started calling it the sacred powder and started basically like trying to completely control the trade of this powder in Europe and that started what you have just mentioned which I like to call a plant race where all the different colonial powers are trying to cultivate or harvest the most amount of this quinchona tree and bring it to all of their various colonies that are being plagued by malaria. Not, of course, for the residents there, but for the colonizers. And in Europe itself, where there were still some areas where malaria was endemic.
1: It's also worth mentioning that white settlers had quite a high mortality rate in places like, uh, like the Caribbean and in, in the East Indies, as they would have called them at the time. And they associated that with the climate and with with the idea of, like, constitution. So white people are acclimatized to England, where it is 10 degrees and raining mm-hmm. at all times. And when you bring them to Jamaica, they just cannot handle it and they die. Um, when actually the problem that they were having was malaria and yellow fever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so this treatment was actually really effective for a lot of different diseases, just specifically malaria was the main one. And part of this plant race, they were like taking seeds from these trees and trying to cultivate the trees everywhere else. But it's actually quite a hard plant to grow. Um, And there's like the Andes are obviously a very specific mountainous range with its very specific climate. So they were really struggling with it. Um, And they were trying to figure out how to use it in different ways to help protect people. And it's this kind of like stealing and growing of product, like natural resources that we see a lot. You see things like trying to grow this tree, but also like sugarcane or rice or coffee, where it was started to be produced in places where it wasn't being produced before. And it overtook the natural landscape and all of the plants that were actually supposed to be growing there. So we still see the re- ramifications of that, like sugar cane production, across like the Caribbean and you see similar kind of like deforestation for for crops that are going to like cash crops across Latin America and Africa. Like it has a similar effect. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: on the question mark positive side it is just a really hard plant to grow so it didn't really work out that way with this in this particular instance but it did mean that there was this like race to try and figure out what to do with the powder and how to manufacture it and how to use it more effectively so from this powder they eventually developed quinine and quinine still is a common treatment for malaria it is very intense it's like a last-ditch effort if none of the other men's work but that quinine led to the creation of the gin and tonic so it originally was quinine powder sugar water gin and lime and british soldiers um british troops who were traveling around the colonies in the early 1800s would make this drink in order to either cure or prevent malaria and this eventually turned into a gnt which naturally has small amounts of quinine in it so if you have ever traveled across sub-saharan africa you will know that people love a gnt there it is still true and it does help mm. it's like people will not take anti-malarials they will instead just drink gnts
1: okay so many things really amuse me about this and it makes me so so happy because i will think about this every single time I ever order a g and because <laughs> colonialism at the bar yay right. yeah and also just the fact that like this this is what is so cool about uh doing something like environmental history like that label sounds so boring but the content of like the content of that kind of research and the implications are just incredible So, yeah, Yeah. everybody get onto your environmental and agricultural histories because it's really interesting.
0: It's super important and it helps to find like economies and climate change and like it's so relevant and like where people Mm -hmm. live and like the geographic landscape. Exactly.
1: uh, I mean, like you need to think about the context and not just the human actors when you're when you're looking at any sort of issue like we don't exist in a vacuum. You need to consider the ecosystems. You need to consider how we're modifying our environments because that's often a huge driver for people's decision making.
0: Yeah. And it's also one of the reasons that colonialism in Africa basically destroyed any systems of operation that were already there because they forced migration and they forced people to live and work and farm in places where they shouldn't have been, that put them more at risk for things like malaria, or where it wasn't defined. like there was a system, there was an operational capacity that they like eradicated. Anyway, one more note about GNTs is that they are better in sub-Saharan Africa. I will say specifically Malawi and Mozambique. They taste better than in North America. Just putting it out there. Thank you. So in the late 1800s, Doctor Payne started using uh, quinine in the treatment of his patients with lupus which started off the beginning of this medical relationship between quinine and other antimalarials as a treatment for lupus. And one final note about this uh, plant race, the one colony that the British had good luck cultivating, the Quinchona tree, was Java. And that that makes sense, mountainous, like rich soils, like I can see the relationship. But in World War II, java was captured by the japanese and so that started this sort of race between the allied and axis powers to develop a synthetic anti-malarial because now the axis powers controlled this natural source of quinine so that they could actually prevent their soldiers in like tropical places from getting malaria and so now the allied forces were at a Mm -hmm. disadvantage which is actually a key part of any invasion plan (laughs) If you
1: plan to invade a place with malaria, you better make sure you have your anti-malarials at the ready.
0: Exactly. And a fun side note is that actually in a lot of spaces, the U.S. Army and other U.S. government operations, like even the Peace Corps, would put their long-term... Forces or individuals, people who are going to stay in an endemic malaria space on some specific anti-malarials that have now been shown to have psychotic side effects, causing people to have like mental breaks and PTSD just from giving them those anti-malarials. Anyway, we are getting sidetracked by all these amazing facts, which was semi my point. But anyway, so because of this sort of race at the beginning of World War II, there was in 1938 a synthetic version of quinine that was called chloroquine, but it was super, super toxic. So you couldn't actually give it to people. As World War II ended, they managed to synthesize from chloroquine hydroxychloroquine, which was then approved for use because it was safe for humans. So it was already known that this could be used as a treatment for other things. Like even from the original kinchona tree, it was used as a treatment for a lot of different illnesses. So beyond just treating malaria with hydroxychloroquine, They also treated a lot of other autoimmune diseases, which is how we get back to lupus eventually. As of not that long ago, it has become a generic drug, which means that anybody can manufacture it and sell it. And it is frequently used to treat the side effects of lupus and other diseases. In fact, most people with lupus, will take hydroxychloroquine at some point in their lives because it is so good at controlling a wide variety of symptoms with no side effects. And it can also prevent blood clots and organ damage that emerge from severe lupus. So it really is a very, very effective treatment. And that, of course, brings us to the modern day when uh, people started deciding, based on almost nothing, that hydroxychloroquine cured COVID. So because (laughs) of that, Supply chains started to back up. People started ordering it and hoarding it, led to certain bans on distribution because governments didn't want people to be like taking it just like randomly. And that led to the lack of available treatment for people with lupus because other people were taking it for COVID. So, that is the storied origins of hydroxychloroquine, one common treatment of lupus. And I pulled three conclusions from this. One, plant-based medicine is hype. We love it, it's incredible, and it's the origin of most, many of our common medications, like aspirin came from willow. Colonialists were always out here stealing shit. (laughs) They were always stealing stuff, and the plant versions of those things are not talked about enough, like we just discussed. Just like that orchid book, The Orchid Thief, And I realize that that is a very seemingly random mention, but a big chunk of The Orchid Thief, the original book, talks about how people became obsessed with collecting orchids, which is exactly like what Angel was talking about earlier. People, like colonizers, were going into indigenous lands and like hoarding, cultivating, stealing rare orchids but they would like find places because the competition in Europe to have like the rarest or most beautiful orchid or whatever was so intense. They would like find fields of orchids, dig up and replant like eight of them and then just burn the field so that nobody else could have it. And there was this like underbelly of orchid hunters that were just traveling the globe just to find orchids. So one incredible example was that there were orchids, really rare orchids growing on the slopes of like Mount Everest before Mount Everest was, um, quote unquote discovered by European explorers. Somebody who was hunting orchids was on the mountain climbing it and then came back and brought them back to England. And then like a decade later, somebody discovered quote Everest, like they were everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. And it was like people were and still do spend millions of dollars of orchids anyway it's a whole different rabbit hole about like collecting plants Mm. and stuff like that anyway my third conclusion that's what i was talking about is that dumb people using medicines wrong puts other people's lives at risk and it's dumb and don't do it did we mention that it's dumb it's dumb it's really dumb so dumb
1: and that's my discussion of lupus thank you (laughs) this was a a good one we're feeling we're feeling a little bit cynical today But I think because it is February, it is allowed. I agree. It's objectively the worst month. Yes. So what's your hooray? I've been trying to think of one for like the last five minutes you were talking. (laughs)
0: My hooray is that I have to do some insane math statistics R thing for a class that I'm taking that I don't like and it is not my forte and I am just struggling and bumbling my way through it but i managed to finish an assignment by myself now did i do it right stay tuned but i'm very happy like i have a sense of accomplishment that i did a hard thing so that trying to put a positive spin on it and that means you can now go lie down
1: what's your hooray? i watched a Night's tale yesterday after like the worst day ever it was a really full day i was very very sad showed it to my boyfriend who'd never seen it and he loved it <laughs> and I loved watching him experience it as well he was just like giggling to himself about all the like medieval
0: jokes and like I, I will fong you it is great and this I will add we've been planning this and feeling like overwhelmed with life and like getting it done and doing it and when we actually do it is such a delight so this is also it another is. hooray for me
1: it's a big big hooray I love hanging out with you you too. And um, this was a really interesting episode. I agree. Okay, so what do we give the fans? A and a and T. And a millipede. Please no millipedes. Okay, I'm I'm gonna go. I love you. I Love you too. Have a nice time. Today. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar sound editing by Maya.